You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Why do relationships fall apart? Because people don't try. I feel like people don't try. You know, there's a small issue and people just would rather, you know, drop it and give up and fight about it rather than talk. I think people give up too easily on things, uh, like in marriages, you gotta go through the good and bad and really try not give up. Due to a lack of communication, you know, not just with your partner, but also with yourself. Because if you don't know how to determine what your problems are, you know, with your own sense of reason, you're not gonna be able to listen with uh, conscious, sober discernment when someone else you know, uh, wants to speak to you of a thing. I guess people want different things. I think that has to do with more the technology side of today's society because we're so involved in the laptops, the phones, the tablets, and the smart watches and everything else, the glasses that put the internet on your face. And it's like, I enjoy technology too, but I don't consume myself in it so much to where I forget how to have a normal conversation with somebody outside of technology. Tell me, why do relationships fall apart? Uh, People change. They're not, they're not always the same person. They're not who you thought they were. Honesty is the biggest key. And so many people feel that the honesty isn't necessary. Incompatibility. It can be a lack of communication. It can be people changing, um, times changing around you. They take work. And if you're not willing to put an investment into a person and keep talking to them and keep putting the time and energy into it, then they fall apart and deteriorate. All right, word on the street, if you could tell the architecture, that is downtown Springfield. So thanks to the media team here for going downtown and, and just asking people on the street some of the questions that in our series, God, I have a question that we're asking here on Sundays. And so uh, the question today, obviously at this point is, God, why do relationships fall apart? And on the video, we heard a lot of very solid, practical, reasonable explanations for why relationships fall apart. There is partial truth in many of the things that they said. But what we heard from that passage of scripture and what we're going to unpack from verses 12 to 14 is really the thing that causes relationships to fall apart is kind of underneath all of those things. That the reason why we are absorbed with technology and the reason why we fail to communicate and the reason why we don't stick it out and all of these things are true, but there is something within us that is broken that leads to those things happening in our lives. And so many of you know I am a relatively young Christian, 10 years in January I will have uh, walked with Jesus and I was thinking in preparing for this message, how many relationships do I have still intact from before I came to faith in Christ. And besides my parents and my children, praise God, I have a relationship with them that hasn't fallen apart, um, only one significant relationship has remained from since before I came to faith in 2008. And I really grieved that because there were some people in my life who I certainly needed to have those relationships fall apart. They were people who were drawing me further away from God. And so I'll take this opportunity to make a little disclaimer. Um, We are talking about relationships that should not fall apart, but unfortunately they do. 
in fact, there are relationships in your life in past, possibly present, that do need to fall apart. We see that in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 and Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 5 where they talk about how if this relationship is destructive and pulling and drawing you further away from God and there isn't a repentant humility type of spirit in that other person, then it's possible that that relationship needs to fall apart. It's possible that at times we need to love people from a distance. But that's not the kind of relationships we're talking about today. We're talking about relationships that have potential. Relationships where God has brought two people in his divine providence together and a connection has been made. And the thing that causes that relationship to fall apart should not be causing it to fall apart. So I would ask you, how are your relationships? I'd like you to do a little scan in in your mind. How many relationships, significant ones, do you have in your life that you had three years ago? How many five years ago? How many of your relationships do you have significant ones in your life that you had 10 years ago? And they are still fighting through the struggles. They're celebrating the successes together. They're healthy relationships and you had them 10 years ago. I'll let you kind of do that little scan in your mind here for a a few seconds. I think when we uh, look back, when we look back on relationships that fell apart, I believe that we all grieve a little bit on that, don't, don't, don't you? And I believe that God grieves when our relationships fall apart. I believe he especially grieves when Christian relationships fall apart because this is how they will you know that you are my disciples because of the love that you have for one another. Jesus pouring out one of his last prayers in John 17. God, I, I wish that your, your children, I wish that, that my followers, I wish that our people would be united. I wish they would stay together. I wish their relationships would not continually fall apart. So we look at Colossians chapter 3 and we see Paul moving in this letter to the church at Colossae and we see in chapters 1 and 2 he's really lifting up the deity of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, the fact that Christ was around when uh, when the creation of the world existed and reminding us of the Trinitarian nature of God that is relational in and of itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's doing this in two chapters and he's really lifting us up to understand who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us. And then Paul shifts. And when we started reading Colossians chapter 3, we see Paul get very horizontal. He starts talking about our relationships with each other. And why, if all of these things are true about us and Christ, how should that then change how we do relationships with one another? Now we're going to go back to chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, and we're going to read that little passage again and unpack it. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also forgive. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So you heard the terminology there, put on. 
And uh, there are some translations that say clothe yourselves. And so the Greek word that's being used there is literally put these virtues, put these relational characteristics on. Much like a sporting team puts on a uniform and they go out on the field and you can tell the Chiefs from the Raiders and you can tell the Cardinals from the Cubs. Cardinals fans? Yeah, when Bob podcasts this, he's going to be proud, right? Mention the Cardinals. But they put the birds and the bats on, right? And that means something. When they go out on the field, you can recognize and you can tell that they are Cardinals. It's an, it's an identification. It's a representation. And so in that same kind of imagery, what we hear about in that text, there are six virtues and characteristics. And Paul says, put that on. Put it, clothe yourself in it. These Relational virtues, when you go out into the world, people should look at you and they should see tenderhearted mercy. And they should see kindness and humility and meekness. They should see these things being lived out and played out in your life, in particular in your closest relationships. So let's go through those six. We're going to start with tenderhearted mercy. Having heartfelt compassion is really what this is talking about. And what uh, I, I love about my relationship with my wife is because I um, am sort of a, a fix it. I'm sort of listening to somebody and I'm already thinking about what I'm going to say in response. Anybody do that? Yeah, you do. Okay, I got one hand raised here. More of you do that than, than one. But we do that. We're, okay, how can I, this person's pouring out their heart to me. This person's had a bad day at work. They've got a hard relationship at work. They've got a family relationship falling apart. Okay, how can I step in and help them fix this? Tenderhearted mercy says, you know what? Sometimes people just need to have you sit and listen. People just need to feel that you are willing to kind of enter into their pain, enter into their suffering, enter into even their joys and their, their achievements in their life and just be with them. In your relationships, if you want to keep your relationships from fall apart, then there is a very practical and spiritual skill that I am still learning in my marriage of keep your mouth closed and keep your empathy open. What, what is this person trying to say? What is really going on? When we all communicate, there are things coming in between the lines, right? Read between the lines. What is really happening in this person's life? And, and how is it possible for me to have compassion in this moment versus having a critical nature or having a corrective spirit? So tenderhearted mercy means that we have empathy for the person we're in relationship with. The next one is kindness, and this is meeting the other person's physical and emotional needs. This is when you identify what that other person's needs are to feel loved and then meeting it, regardless of it being the way that you give and receive love or not. There is a landmark uh, book and assessment called The Five Love Languages. Uh, raise your hand if you've done Gary Chapman's Five Love Languages. Okay. Not all of you. Good. Go to the website Five Love Languages, and there's a free assessment on there for the love languages. And any intimate relationship is very much benefited by learning what the other party's love language is. And what that means is that when that person is having that love language spoken to them, then their relational tank is filling up and they're feeling loved. But if their relational, if the other person is serving them in one of the other areas, it's fine. The other person isn't getting angry or bitter, but their love tank isn't filling up. And so there are five of them, receiving gifts, words of affirmation, acts of service, physical touch, and quality time. Well, my top love language off the charts is words of affirmation. 
So my wife can blow my text up with the little sweet nothings all day and come home and just give me a real affirming word. And then as soon as her tone might change or shift or become critical or a little bit insensitive, my love tank is depleting. Like there's a gaping hole in the side of Mark's love tank. And, and she can tell that all of that work that she had done to speak my love language can oftentimes just leak out. Now hers is quality time. And so this is a challenge because we can have an entire weekend or honeymoon or anniversary and get home. And by the, the second day that we're home, she's like, I feel like I haven't even seen you. We were just together for seven days, 24 seven. But what she's communicating there is I need to feel like we spend quality time together. And when that doesn't happen for 48, 72 hours, there's a gaping hole in the side of her love tank and it's leaking out. If you wanna have relationships with last, it, that last, it is important for you to find out what that other person's relational needs are. And regardless of whether it is yours or not, you meet it. Now that's sacrificial and that starts to get hard. We're gonna talk more about how to do that later. The next one is humility. And this really talks about uh, a humility, meaning a lowly attitude toward God. Jesus gave the most, uh, epic and famous sermon ever given was called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus gets up and the very first words out of his mouth are the Beatitudes. And the first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying right off the bat, he's about to belt out the best sermon ever. And the first thing he mentions is humility, a poverty of spirit, a realization that there is nothing we can do to make our relationship right with God, nothing. You can be the best church person, never miss worship, serve your tail off, watch your language, not go to rated R movies, not listen to secular television. Now I could go on and on and you still haven't done enough to stand right before God and say, accept me. I pulled it off, Lord. There's a place in the scriptures in the gospels where that actual, that actual thing happened. One of the Pharisees is praying and he's praying this prayer. Jesus is telling the story and he's like, thank you, God, that I, I'm not an adulterer and thank you that I'm not greedy. Thank you that I give my tithe to the temple and thank you that I pray on the hours of prayer and I'm not like those other people who are heathens and, and far from you. And then Jesus said, but then there was this tax collector, the sinner, and he was far off and he threw himself on the ground and he was on his knees and he cried out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says something very powerful. The other guy, he had the religious checklist, right? Good guy, probably faithful husband, solid businessman, handled himself ethically, morally. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, the one over down on his knees crying out for mercy went home right before God. What? He humbled himself he recognized that the only way for him to have a relationship with God was to plead for God's mercy. You want relationships that last with other people, you're gonna to need to continually remember where you stand in your relationship with God. So the next thing is meekness. This is having a lowly attitude toward one another. Another common translation for that word is gentleness. Now I was in a, um, I was talking to a uh, pastoral care pastor and he was like, you know one thing I really like to talk to my couples when they come in about is I like to ask them if they fight in their relationship. 
So I'm always curious to see how the honesty floodgates are gonna open here or not, right? Do you fight in your relationship? And he said, most of them admit that they do and some don't. And, and he said, well, you know, actually in virtually every case, a couple is going to fight. But the question is, what are you fighting for? The problem, a relational breakdown happens when we fight for our rights more than we fight for our relationship. That just blew me away. He said, it's okay to fight, but what you need to do is remember at the end of the day, the fight is more for your relationship than it is for your rights. In Colossians chapter three, verse 11, we read this and kind of skimmed past it, but if you didn't notice, there's this really gem verse right in the middle. It says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Now I was talking about romantic relationships, uh, referring to that pastor and his story. Here's what that means. Here's what meekness and gentleness means on the larger scale for a Christian working to make relationships last. What that scripture just said is in your circle of family relationships, in your circle of friend relationships, in your circle of professional relationships, the ranking that you put in your mind of that person smarter, that person's more relationally talented, that person is X, that person is Y. We do that. When we see other people, we compare them to ourselves and we compare them to other people. It's how we're wired. We do this. And what meekness does is it breaks down recognizing those things for what they are. But when it comes to relational dynamics between people, none of that matters. Especially for Christians. It doesn't matter the smartest person in this room, the highest IQ person and the lowest IQ person, the scripture just said, doesn't matter. In Christ, we are all on the same playing field with one another. We are all created in the image and likeness of God, gifted in different ways, talented in different ways, but God has called us to be in relationship with one another. There is no ranking in our relationships in Christian relationships. And recognizing that helps us keep our relationships from falling apart. The next one is long suffering. Uh, in the NLT, it said patience. And most translations handle that translation with patience. I prefer long suffering. Those of you that cut your teeth on the KJV and the fruit of the spirit, it's also long suffering. And so if you want your relationships to last, you, you've got to get prepared to go through some hard times. There is absolutely nowhere in scripture that promises us a easy, carefree, problem-free, suffering-free, pain-free life. Find that passage and show it to me after worship. We need to talk. There is no promise for that. So we typically individualize those passages and we think, okay, my life is going to have suffering. My life is going to have pain. In Christ, I can do all things because he gives me strength. But we forget that those promises for trial and testing and suffering and pain in this life also include our relationships. Our relationships are gonna hit hard times. Our relationships are gonna get hard. We're gonna need to start actually fighting through some very difficult relational issues with those who are closest to us in our lives. And what we do is we fight against a culture that is, has become a disposable culture. We wanna avoid pain. We want to move to relationships that are easy and fun. And when they stop being easy and fun, we wanna move on to the next relationships. We just, we have this very short term type of a mindset when it comes 
to our relationships. And what, what Paul is saying is with one another, would you, would you work on being patient with one another? Would you bear with one another? If someone has wronged you would, you, would you, would you just bear that with them? Would you look past it? Can you have patience? Can you settle in and dial in and bear down in your relationships and suffer long? The last one is forgiveness. Remembering Christ forgave you, forgive one another. Now, I think he, he lists this last for a very poignant reason. It's because it is the silver bullet for lasting relationship, Christian living, forgiveness. I was in Eureka Spring years, years and years ago, and uh, it was an amazing scene. I, I saw this uh, newlywed couple, and, and they were walking, and they ran into this really elderly couple holding. Isn't that so cute? The elderly couples are holding hands. I just love that. My wife and I are like, that's going to be us. And so, uh, but they, they started talking. They struck up this conversation. And it was, I think it was a divine appointment. And I just overheard this happening. And, and they asked the, the uh, older couple, well, what's your, what's your secret? Like, what's kept you together? And they both said, without hesitation, forgiveness. They said, you know, you two, you can have the healthiest financial situation, the healthiest, smartest kids, and you can have the vacations and the experiences and you can have all of that. You can have physical attraction. And I tell you, if you will not forgive each other, you'll never make it. I was like, wow, that was profound advice. I didn't know either one of them. I don't know <laughs> if the young couple is forgiving each other. But I know this, if your relationships aren't covered and clothed in just a spirit and a readiness to forgive one another, it's very likely that relationship is not gonna last. So remembering that Christ forgave us, remembering the need that we have for forgiveness for the other is so key. So I've got a kind of, uh, the video talked about the technology harming relationships. I've kind of got the technology addiction. Most of us are really into our devices these days. And so I decided to redeem that by putting a prayer app on my phone. So here it is, it's called PrayerMate. If you don't have PrayerMate, this is actually a really good prayer app. And you can like categorize your prayers and they have uh, ready-made template prayers and they have prayers for my wife. And so I came across this one one morning and I was, this, is, this is a great prayer. This is part of it. Thank God for the undeserved gift he gave you in your wife. Even with all her flaws, however you may, they may be, you don't deserve her. Thank God for the companion he gave you in her. Praise and worship and bless God for her and for her unspeakable beauties and ask God for his grace in every area of your marriage. And this is the part that I love. If she's a big sinner, remember that you're an even bigger one still. And yet, <laughs> neither of you are beyond the saving grace and the restoring mercies of the Savior. Refuse to complain. Amen? Every few days that comes up in my prayer app and I think to myself, if she's a bigger sinner, then I'm an even bigger one still. I just love how that gives me, it puts me into the mindset of kind of wanting to forgive. A lot of us begrudgingly forgive. A lot of us forgive because we grew up in the church and we know we should, and it kind of becomes a religious activity or duty. Well, throughout the scriptures, forgiveness is not that. In the Christian sense, forgiveness is, is creating a desire and a readiness and a longing to forgive the people in our lives that are closest to us. 
A friend of mine said, he's been married 25 years, uh, and he said in his uh, pastoral counseling appointments, his pastor told him something that he and his wife uh, have got up on the wall of their house, and, and what he told them was the first one to the cross wins. In your fights, in your disagreements, in your pouting sessions, in all of these times that your relationship seems like it's starting to drift apart or, or fall apart, he said, the first one to the cross wins. The first one to the cross, the first one to forgive, the first one to swallow their pride, the, the first one to absorb whether or not they're right or wrong, but they're going to fight for that relationship, that person wins. Not the person who wins the argument. That doesn't, that doesn't heal relationships. That doesn't keep relationships together. If one person ends up being right more than the other one, or somehow they find a way to balance the scales on who wins the arguments, that doesn't keep relationships together. We know that intuitively, but in our relationships, we continually act as if we don't. So how does this matter? And a lot of you are probably thinking, how does this, okay, those are all relational virtues and characteristics that we should have toward one another, but, but how does that really happen? How do I apply that? How do I put that on? How, does the, how do those things actually begin to be clothing that I wear in my spiritual and relational lives? Well, I would propose that we do that in looking at the person of Jesus Christ. Look through the lens and the life of Jesus and see how he fulfills all of those characteristics that we've just walked through toward us. Whether you have a relationship with Jesus today or not, maybe you have had a relationship and you've drifted apart. Maybe that relationship with Jesus is falling apart right now. Maybe it isn't. Maybe today you come in here and you and God are as close to each other as you've ever been. If that's true for you, praise God. Then when you hear these six characteristics spoken through the lens of the life and love of Jesus, let that drive you to praise and worship of him today. So let's look at the first one. How does Jesus do relationship with each one of us? Tenderhearted mercy. In Hebrews 4.15, it says that he is a great high priest that, that can sympathize with our weakness, that he was tested in every way, just like you and just like me, and yet was without sin. In our relationship with Jesus, whenever we uh, invite him into our, our mess and our life and our struggles and every aspect of our life here, we have a savior that sits at our side and he doesn't interrupt us. He isn't itching to correct us. He can empathize with us. That he's right there and he says, you know what, I know. I know, I, I went through the same things. I, went th I know how you feel. The God of the universe and the person of Jesus Christ has tender-hearted mercy toward you and toward me. The second is kindness. And when we looked at kindness, we talked about how that was the meeting of needs. And I love how Jesus throughout the scriptures ends up running into different people at different times and different places, and they're all very unique. You get Zacchaeus up in a tree, and you get the woman at the well, and you get the rich young ruler. And, and what you see is Jesus meeting each one of them with different words, with different tones, with different commands, with different suggestions, with different teachings. And what is he doing there? Jesus has this kindness where he knows what it is that we need to hear in the moment that we need to hear it. If you're in here today and you, and you wonder whether or not Jesus can speak into your life specifically, into your individual issues, 
Jesus is the kind of person that understands what your needs are. He knows he's counted the hairs on your head. The sparrow doesn't fall from the sky without his knowledge. He knows what you need and he loves, just as we saw through the gospel accounts, to come and individualize meeting those needs for you. The third, humility. In, hum in Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself. That he didn't see equality with God as something to grasp. I love that imagery. That He, he didn't see this as something to grasp. The, the divinity and the glory and the worship and, and all of that. He didn't grasp that, but he emptied himself and he came and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see humility even within the Trinity. We see Jesus falling on his knees and crying out to God for another way on the night before the crucifixion, but ending up saying, not my will, but your will be done. The God who wants a relationship with you doesn't just ask you to humble yourself. He says, look at me. Look at me who is God and I humbled myself. And I did that for you. The next meekness, Jesus is approachable. Anybody can walk up to Jesus. When we talked about meekness and having um, this lowly attitude toward one another, there is no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free. What we see in Jesus is we see kids running up to Jesus. We see tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and thieves just being drawn to Jesus like Jesus is some kind of magnet. No matter who you are or where you're from, what type of person or background you have, people are just drawn to Jesus, right? And you say, well, not the religious people. Yeah, even the religious people, the Pharisees, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, two Pharisees that were drawn to Jesus. For people who are open to know Jesus, he's approachable. See, I don't know if you knew that or not. Jesus is approachable. Jesus wants you to come to him like the children that he invited to come and just sit in his lap. He wants you to come and approach him. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, he invites that. The next is long suffering. Now, if you read the gospel accounts and you go from the time of his baptism all the way to the time of his resurrection and ascension, you can't miss how patient and long suffering Jesus is with his disciples, right? I mean, he's given the most, you know, uh, anointed teaching that, that could ever be given, given. He's feeding thousands. He's raising people from the dead. He's walking on water and his disciples are still not getting it, right? They're still asking for explanations. They're still saying, no, Jesus, you, we, we can't go to Jerusalem and that whole cross thing. And then Peter, on the night that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest disciples, Peter ends up in the court outside of the trial and he denies that he even knows Jesus three times. How patient is Jesus? And so what does Jesus say after the crucifixion and resurrection? Peter, seriously, get back to fishing. I got to go find someone else to plant the church. No, that's not what he says. He ends up having breakfast with Peter on a seashore. And he asks him three times, one for each denial. Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? He's restoring Peter. He's long-suffering. He's patient. For those of you that think that you have gone too far away from Jesus, that you think that you have waited too long to turn back to Jesus, I promise you he is up in heaven, long-suffering and patient for your return to him. And then finally, the forgiveness. Uh, remember when I said earlier, the first one to the cross wins in your relationships? Well, in our relationship with God, Jesus was the first one to the cross. 
In 1 John 4.10, it says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us first. Not one of us came to our spiritual senses without even understanding the cross and resurrection of Jesus and thought, you know what? I think I need to really do something sacrificial in my life. I need to put things in order and get things together. When it comes to your salvation and right relationship with God, he went first. He pursued you first. He beat you to the cross. And he suffered for you and for me. Instead of fighting for his rights, instead of looking from heaven down on us and saying, look, have you not listened to the prophets? Have you not read the law? I'm right. You guys are wrong. I'm perfect. You keep messing up. He didn't fight to be right. He fought for a relationship with us. He fought for a close and personal and intimate relationship with every one of us. And he initiates it and he pursues it relentlessly. Jesus is the only person who, if you find him, will truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Your other relationships, I hope not a single one of them falls apart on you. I hope you leave here today and you put on and you clothe these virtues, but you're still going to have trouble because we fall short and the other relationships fall short. But in your relationship with Jesus, the other party in that relationship, if you fail him, will every time forgive you. And if you find him, will every time fulfill you. You were made for a relationship like that with God. We were made for relationships like that with one another. I want to read the last few verses from that passage in Colossians 3 because I feel like it really sets us up for worship and response. And, and after I read that, um, I want to invite you to respond wherever you are in your relationship with God. Respond out of a desire to know the mercy and the kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Let's read these words. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and to always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom that he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And all of God's people said together, 